0: Welcome back to Insights Unlocked. I'm extremely excited to release this discussion with Jeff Snyder, founder of Eurodollar University and one of the foremost experts on the global monetary system. He's widely known for his unique perspective on all aspects of its misunderstood inner workings and how they impact global markets and the economy. Jeff has been a huge influence to me in trying to understand the complex macro environment we've experienced over the past few years, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to chat and dig into some of the questions that I know myself and all of you folks have been trying to piece together about the world we live in today. Let's jump right into it. All right. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jeff. Really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me, Jim. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, I must say before we get going, I've been a huge fan of the uh, unique perspective you bring to really analyzing our global monetary system. And a lot of your work has pushed me into deep rabbit holes at times, trying to to piece together all those various factors. And so we're excited to have you uh, chat and dig into some of the answers um, to the questions that we have today. So uh, let's start off with a bit of an overview of the state of the economy at the moment. And so just for some context here, uh, the U.S. economy grew 2.6 percent in Q3, beating expectations uh, supported by strong exports, while consumer spending remains fairly steady. And uh, we have a job market that is still relatively healthy. And so there seems to be a divergence between economic growth and consumer health as employment levels are still high, while consumer balance sheets are still relatively healthy with moderate amounts of leverage. And so, Jeff, what do you currently make of consumer health right now? And where do you foresee issues with the consumer emerging as we move into 2023?
1: Well, the state of consumers is in some ways perplexing, as you said, Jim. There's a lot of ambiguity about the state of the economy, starting with consumers. I mean, anecdotally, you hear any number of stories about how consumers are struggling, which you would expect given the price pressures and the basic necessities, gasoline, food, maybe rent, depending on how you calculate and depending on what you're talking about. But under those types of circumstances, you would expect that the consumer would be struggling. But as you say, it's not as if consumer spending has fallen off a cliff. On the contrary, in real terms, consumer spending is sort of iffy, sideways. It's not horrible. And I think that's really where the disconnect is, is the idea that, you know, recession is coming. And so shouldn't consumer spending be leading the recession? Therefore, consumer spending should be absolutely atrocious. And that's really where the recession comes from. And I don't think that's ever the case. I think consumer spending ends up being a lagging indicator more than anything. And that's some of the other parts of the economy where the downturn really starts to hit. Then it gets into the labor market and then consumer spending really softens. And so that raises, you know, what is the labor market doing? Because consumers have been, survey after survey, saying they're more concerned about prices than they are necessarily about jobs, although that's starting to rise too. And so you haven't really seen that major break in the labor market either, where companies are saying, we need to fire thousands of workers, mass layoffs, the type of, type of, uh, of cost-cutting measures that are usually associated with recession. We haven't seen that either. But that doesn't mean that we're not in a period of weakening or a transition from growth to from expansion to contraction. There are several concerning warning signs out there that suggest that the process is underway, even if you can't see it right now and see it very clearly right now and say, ah, yes, this is a recession. This is what's happening. Um, There's a number of processes that take place before recession. The the real part of the, the real meat part of the recession happens. That uh, we can see all over the, the economy, starting with the labor market too. While firms are not necessarily laying off workers, they aren't necessarily hiring them either. They're so, you sort of go into that transition where companies become more careful about managing their payrolls and their workforce. They get very careful about managing their capital expenditures. So you have this softening transition between expansion and contraction, where it seems if you, if you see that the you know, these things are happening, you, you're you're more concerned about where the economy is going. Whereas because it's sort of ambiguous from a high level perspective, it creates a lot of uncertainty, confusion about what the economy is actually doing.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, the other major part of that, as you, you touched on is, is corporate health, right? And so q3 gap earnings uh, as projected by by the s p are, are projected to come in around 47.2 dollars per share uh, which is you know still near the 2021 high of 49.5 dollars a share a year ago but you know on the other hand as you mentioned guidance seems to be getting weaker and weaker um, and also on the manufacturing side, we've seen October PMI print down to 50.4 and ISM at 50.2, which is the lowest since May 2020. And so, yeah, Jeff, what do you make of the health of the corporate landscape here moving into Q4 in 2023?
1: And that's usually what the leading part of the res- any recession is, is that companies look at their, not their past earnings, their future earnings potential, and that's where all starts. And we're, as, you, as you mentioned, Jim... Companies are looking ahead and they're starting to scale back revenue as well as profit estimates. Profits maybe a little bit more so because obviously cost pressures are still exceedingly high um, and they're going to remain high because it's not tied to the economy. Gasoline, energy prices in particular, uh, food prices, that's not an economic. So companies have to factor in the fact that we're dealing with political fallout in these, in their price and in their cost structures. And eventually if you get a little bit weakening in revenue, It leads to all those self-reinforcing processes of recession where companies say profits are going lower because revenues aren't going to stay up. Therefore, they got to make adjustments in cost where they can. You can't do anything about energy. So what can you do? Well, at first you stop hiring as many workers. Then maybe you start cutting hours. Then if if it still doesn't go well, that's when you get into the layoffs and all the more recessionary processes. But that's really where we are in Q3 into Q4 his companies, I think, are now starting to make those judgments because earnings projections and revenue projections are starting to really soften up a, a, a more than they already have. So it's sort of like the acceleration to the slowdown rather than the slowdown slowing down.
0: Right. Off the back of that, let, let's touch on, on inflation. And so US CPI is at 8% and the, the Fed's favorite inflation metric, PCE, um, is up to 5.1% year over year. Uh, 0.1% lower than estimates, but still the highest since April. And so, Jeff, what's been driving inflation currently? And can you lay out your view of why, moving forward, inflation is indeed, dare I say it, uh, transitory?
1: Use the word. Use the word. Be <laughs> confident. Say it proudly. <laughs> now, it's, transitory is a loaded word. It has become a loaded word because you, you know, it sounds like temporary shouldn't be a year and a half. But any kind of macro scale, um, transitory can be a couple years. It, it doesn't necessarily mean two, three months and it's over with. And I think that's really the problem. People lost patience with the idea that the forces at play in, in the uh, supply part of the economy, global supply, actually, um, the politics of it. Geez, I mean, those things are not going to work themselves out over a couple of days or a couple of weeks or a couple of months. In fact, we're still dealing with high energy prices. Why? Because... Various domestic policies, various global policies. Oil producers want to cut back and keep oil prices high, when they should be adding production. Simple economics: when prices go up, they should be adding more supply. They're cutting it back. They're cutting it back in re- in response to weakening demand too. So companies, um, transitory, all this—it's all the rest of the consumer price bucket where we start to see, um, up until this point, slowing price growth. Not yet really falling prices. Um, a lot of retailers have said, we've got way too much inventory. But up until this point, they've sort of just, they've kind of managed their inventory by slowing the amount of inventory they're accumulating. We haven't really gotten into the massive discounting and liquidations. So moving forward, just like in the corporate sector, in the goods economy, outside of energy, food, and rents, because rents is you know, it's a whole other ball of wax with owner's equivalent rent and everything else. The parts of the goods economy that is tied to the economics of the situation, you should start to see those prices begin to fall. Um, You know, Amazon just had its second prime day last month. Didn't really go all that well. Amazon's, you know, massive amount of inventory. They need to clear it out. Everybody knows they need to clear it out. Christmas shopping season, which is the prime shopping season for all retailers. Um, Every retailer's got massive loads of inventory, softening consumer spending. It's the recipe for not just discounts, but heavy discounted even liquidation in inventory. So, generally speaking, the parts of the CPI that are tied to actual economic circumstances, as I said up to now, they've been the, the, the rise in prices has been slowing. Would expect that those prices actually begin to decline in the months ahead, especially maybe into December and January, depending upon how soft the Christmas season actually goes. So there is a situation, there is a path to lower lower CPIs in those parts or lower parts of the CPI um, apart from energy, food, and, and rents.
0: Right. That makes sense. Economic data still coming in and printing relatively strong. Uh, we have a stable job market and CPI at 8%, at least in the Fed's perspective. Um, there doesn't seem to be any reason to slow down rate hikes, at least not yet. Uh, But let's look a bit further into 2023. And so euro dollar futures have been inverted for quite some time now, and the camel hump just seems to keep getting steeper with the uh, shorter end whites moving up (laughs) higher again. It's amazing. Uh, Yeah, I know, right? Compared to to last week at a peak of about 5.2%, I think, in which we then get you know, crazily heavy inversion into H one of twenty twenty three, um, with the market essentially saying that the more the Fed hikes, the more cuts will then have to follow. That's right.
1: That's the crazy part, right, Jim? It's it's doesn't matter what the Fed does. Whatever happens, happens. It leads to rate cuts. It's right. it doesn't. It the Fed is completely out of the equation, except for how far will they go and how far will they get.
0: Yeah, and so so essentially, you do concur with 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 the year dollar markets view, right? And in, in terms of kind of magnitude and timing here, and what what are your thoughts on on the potential Fed pivot here moving into next year?
1: Yeah, you're right. The the magnitude is the thing to focus on. Timing is always up in the air. Okay, and the timing has shifted back and forth throughout this year. The inversion. Uh, started out way far in the back of the curve, as it always does. And it progressed all the way up to the December 2022 contract at one point in the middle part of the year. Then the market said, well, maybe the maybe the economy doesn't fall off as fast enough. Maybe the CPIs don't come down far enough. But that's really the question, right? The Eurodollar futures market, which you should never bet against. History says you don't bet against the Eurodollar futures curve because it's been right every single time. Um, but what the, what is the market actually saying? What the market is saying is, as near a certainty as possible in a dynamic world. I mean, we can never be hundred percent certain about everything. Nobody has a crystal ball, right. but something is going to happen in the relatively near future that causes the federal reserve to stop hiking rates and then start maybe aggressively cutting them. And that's, I mean, what would that be? There's only a narrow list of candidates here. And if we look at what's causing the fed to hike rates, as you just said, Jim, it's, it's you know, pretty simple case. As long as the CPIs are high, the Fed says we're going to continue rates. In fact, we're going to continue hiking rates until we see the CPI not just go down, but we're reasonably assured it stays down. So there's basically two possibilities that get the Fed out of its rate hiking regime. One is that happens to the CPI, that we have what would have to be a pretty substantial contraction in a very short, condensed period of time where the CPI actually does fall and probably the unemployment rate rises precipitously. That would be one way for the, for the uh, euro dollar futures curve scenario to play out. Another way would be something happens that gets the Fed to forget about the CPI regardless of where it is. So the CPI could still be at six, you know, 8%. The PCE deflator could be at 6%. And the Fed says, oh, crap, something else is going on. Now, what would that be? That would be something like a global financial crisis, right? Right. And we sort of got a taste of that at the end of last quarter. Most people don't pay attention to the deep internals, which is understandable. We had a collateral shortage, a collateral scarcity that turned into an absolute run at the end of Q3. Now, people probably noticed the symptoms of it, the UK, the guilt market, some things happening in Europe, but they probably don't realize where that came from. So there was, there's already a lot of warning signs that the monetary system globally is not operating in an ideal shape. It's actually operating in a near crisis shape because repo fails at the end of the Q, Q3 were almost a trillion. Haven't seen Jeez. that in many, many years. It was almost double what it had been in March of 2020. So we had a real monetary break there at the end of, of September. That you stuff in the UK was just a symptom of that and if we have something worse than that you could say maybe that's what brings the fed out of its focus on the cpi and thinking we need to hate we need to aid the the monetary system because that's what's really that's become the primary risk to the uh, global marketplace and the global economy
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting and and we'll we'll touch on the collateral shortage a bit more in a second but one more question on on inflation i mean it, it, it Like CPI, fundamentally, it's really sort of an issue for the Fed to rely on, right? Because it's a lagging indicator and, and it's just based on data in the past. And in a, so in an ideal world with an ideal Fed, if, if you can even begin to imagine that, um, <laughs> what metrics or indicators should the Fed be using to, to really judge whether or not to raise or lower interest rates?
1: Well, that's the thing. In an ideal world, which obviously does not exist and never could (laughs) exist, but honestly, inflation is all about money supply. It's is is there too much money or is there not too much money? And the answer is no, there is not. I mean, we just talked about some of the deflationary consequences in the monetary system. And what's driving the CPI isn't really inflation. It's supply shocks and politics and all these other things. So if we separate these issues down to is there or is there not too much money, that becomes a real that's what the central bank should be focusing on. But that's not what the central banks do nowadays. They can't. They haven't done that in decades because they have no idea what's going on in the the monetary system, which is why they're reliant on these economic aggregates like CPIs or the unemployment rate, which are at best lagging. And at most times, like the unemployment rate, they're misleading. So um, the Fed is relying on bad data because it doesn't have any other choice. It doesn't know what's going on in the monetary system. So what other options does it have? But in an ideal world, they would say, yes, there's too much money. We need to cut back on the money supply. Boom, inflation's gone. Now, the central bank can't do anything about oil prices. They can't get more oil out of the ground. They can't um, get more shipping containers to China or uh, untangle the railroads in Chicago. That's, That's beyond the capabilities of a central bank. In an ideal world, we would never turn to the central bank to fix those problems. So those price pressures have nothing to do with money supply or the Fed or anything else. Those are all about non-economic variables. But what we can say is that, look, this is not a monetary thing. This isn't, this isn't over a production of money, which I know most people say, what are you talking about? The Fed QE, the federal government in 2020, all that stuff. But the monetary situation is far more complicated. It's beyond the capabilities of the Federal Reserve to define, let alone measure. So we don't have the ability to say, let's turn off the inflation, let's turn off the money, which is what really should happen.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so let's now dig a bit deeper into the euro dollar system and the the dollar shortage. And so this all presumably plays back into higher lending costs and lower expectations of growth, right? And so first, fundamentally, can you shed some light into how euro dollar banks play a large role in credit creation and contraction? And you know what what's really happening now in the shadow banking system that's creating and driving this global dollar shortage?
1: It's basically risk aversion, right? Um, in a ledger virtual currency system, a reserveless currency system, it's all based on risk perceptions. In fact, that's how most banks operate in the investment banks anyway. That's, that's how they've operated since day one. It's, uh, everything is about risk adjusted returns. So even if returns seem relatively good in the nominal economy, but risks are greater than the returns, banks are going to cut back. Unfortunately, in a monetary system, in a virtual currency system, we need banks to produce money and credit, which the lines, this distinction between money and credit has blurred to the point where it's, it's impossible to tell one from the other, especially when you consider things like currency swaps and derivatives and how they're used. It's impossible. So we're really on a, a credit creation or a credit money standard, which means banks need to expand their balance sheet, their risk-taking behavior in order to supply enough money slash credit to the economy. For it to be able to grow at or near its potential because that's really what money is money isn't wealth it's a tool that allows a modern economy to operate most efficiently and to operate right. most efficiently in a wide uh, across a wide section of the, glo- the planet because you know we're talking about a reserve currency system here which means you know the dollar doesn't just affect the united states it affects everybody and if there's lack of reserve currency, that's a problem for us. That's a problem for Europe. That's a problem, obviously, for China and Asia and everywhere in between. And without the money and credit to operate efficiently, the economy efficiently, trade breaks down, economic growth lingers. There's too many frictions. There's too many inefficiencies introduced, which creates this economic drag. And so it all comes back to risk perceptions of those creating the credit and the money. If, they're, if banks are perceiving a high level a high degree of risk regardless of nominal returns they're going to pull back and when they pull back that causes all sorts of deflationary consequences including massive financial instability because markets don't have sufficient resources to operate in the way that they're supposed to either the margins for error they get narrower and narrower and narrower It causes all sorts of problems too and then it becomes self-reinforcing right because Banks become risk averse. They cut back on their balance sheet that deprives the economy of credit. Then the economy starts to go soft and, de- and then the same banks say, we need to become even more risk averse because the, the, uh, the env- operating environment is even riskier than we thought. And so without any way to really interrupt that process, it just becomes a self-reinforcing, oftentimes di- di- disinflationary, if not deflationary spiral.
0: Interesting. And so, Jeff, where does... The huge rise in global dollar-denominated debt play a role in all of this, right? So let me know if I'm thinking about this correctly. But you know, as as interest rates rise um, on the massive amount of global global de- dollar-denominated debt which needs to be serviced, is that then driving the increase in folks looking for dollars? You know, largely for the unproductive purposes of of servicing debt, which then takes away dollars from uh, you know the processes that actually contribute to economic growth is that a large reason of of what's driving the, the dollar so high right now and you know expectations of economic growth lower as well
1: yeah it's all about again it's risk perception so the rising dollar is nothing more than the the euro dollar system charging a premium and it's really okay. a liquidity premium to participate in the dollar system which because it's the reserve currency and contrary to what many people say there is no other alternative on the horizon anywhere that's going to challenge what the what the euro dollar does as the actual reserve currency the cost of operating this monetary or operating in this monetary system have gone way up because there's fewer dollars out there and there's you know another misconception is that dollar denominated debt has somehow surged it has skyrocketed since 2008 and that's just not the case in fact it's the opposite we had dollar denominated debt skyrocket up until 2008, and then since then it has increased, but it has grown at a markedly lower lower rate, which is, in, a, in the nonlinear world that we live in, a massive contraction. So we have a lot of dollar-dominated debt, but that's not because, um, you know, it's because of risk-taking or because of too much money printing. There's a lot of dollar denominated debt because we operate on a dollar system and a dollar right. standard. But you're right. There is an issue here with higher rates as well as a a surcharge, a liquidity surcharge being being charged by these dealer banks that's causing enormous problems because participating in the euro dollar system is more expensive. It's more inefficient. It's more troubling because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And it's really it's not it's not necessarily a matter of the Federal Reserve so much as it is the operation of the system itself.
0: Interesting. And so we've also seen some other cracks begin to emerge uh, more recently with the use of the Fed's dollar swap line with the Swiss National Bank, uh, where we saw increasing auction volumes up to 11 billion, as well as number of counterparties participating uh, up until last week, where the use of of the swap line dropped back to zero. Um, But, you know, as a whole, 11 billion dollar use of the facility seems like uh, rather just a drop in the bucket right and so what what are the dynamics there and, and does the recent halt in counterparties emerging for dollars mean that you know dollar funding is more stable for the time being what else are you looking at that may suggest that the dollar shortage may be indeed getting worse
1: yeah switzerland's an interesting uh, development and i think it's you know People look at it as sort of a black and white flip of a switch, right? If, if there's somebody there at the Swiss National Bank, it means things are bad. And oh, there's nobody there the next week, zero dollars being bid, everything's fine again. And it's, it's far more nuanced than that. Uh, why there was bids at the Swiss National Bank, we'll never know because we're never privy to that sort of situation. But we can, we can offer a couple reasonable guesses. And I always go back to collateral. Uh, one of the primary problems in the collateral system is Italian bonds. Italian bonds and because it's it's Italian bonds because Germany doesn't doesn't borrow enough money. Um, The German bonds are the best of the best euro denominated collateral. And the German government doesn't issue a lot of bonds because it doesn't have a large fiscal deficit. Right. Whereas Italy, as the third largest economy, has an enormous fiscal deficit and issues tons of bonds. So as far as the euro denominated collateral goes. Most repo in Europe is dominated by Italian bonds, which poses a problem for these various intermittent periods like 2018 or 2011 and 2022 when the market says when the market grows a a substantial distaste for Italian fiscal uh, fiscal factors and fiscal uh, fiscal operations. So we've seen Italian spreads over Germans actually blow out this year. And it's not just Euro-denominated repo or Euro-denominated borrowing where that's a problem because a lot of these Italian government bonds are swapped into U.S. treasuries for borrowing in U.S. dollars because Europe needs dollars too. Everybody needs dollars. Right. So if there are counterparties out there who have been swapping Italian bonds and the market spreads from the Italian bonds start to go higher, maybe they're not able to do that. So where do you go with your Italian bond? If you have a Swiss subsidiary, maybe you bid at the Swiss, Swiss National Bank for dollars because you can't swap them in the treasuries at the same rate you could before. Now, I'm just speculating. I think it's a reasonable speculation. So, But in the context of what we're talking about, the Swiss National Bank borrowing, there shouldn't be anybody there. There should be nobody borrowing at the Swiss National Bank at any time. So the fact that somebody was borrowing even $11 billion may not sound like a lot. In the grand, Like you said, Jim, in the grand scheme of things, it isn't. But it should be zero. And it should also be noted that there are times in, in history, recent history, such as May 2010, where we had a little bit of a spike in, in borrowing at the dollar swap auctions in Europe. Never got more than nine billion, but that wasn't a nothing. That was a precursor. It was a presage of, of much bigger problems to follow, because it suggested that there was enough going wrong that some banks felt the need to go and uh, at least um, well. Banks don't directly go to these auctions, but they, they get other banks that borrow for on their behalf and then relend it to them. So if there are banks in the marketplace who are figuring they can profit enough by relending to more troubled banks, that means there are more troubled banks out there. So the fact that there's any lending at all or any borrowing at all at the Swiss National Bank or ECB or wherever it happens to be is a sign that there's a little bit to be concerned about here. But as you said, Jim, as you, as you were implying... It's not really just about these dollar swaps. That's sort of a sideshow. That's sort of a, a down the road or down the line indication. The real stuff is what we see in the marketplace. And there's any number of warning signs that say things are not good. And it, it, you know, it does, it's not just Italian bond spreads over Germany, which, I mean, again, these are, they've uh, decompressed tremendously. We've seen massive blowout and spreads there, which yeah. can trigger all sorts of collateral prices or collateral problems. Um, There's CLO issues, spreads, credit spreads on uh, risky junk bonds, which, again, collateral. Um, One of the primary indications of the collateral shortage that we've seen throughout this year is that T-bill prices. T-bill prices go through the roof. Um, GC repo rates, uh, maybe counterintuitively, when GC repo rates fall and fall below certain thresholds, that's actually a warning sign that things are not good, too. We've seen all these things happen. We saw all those things happen in the second half of September. Um, Any number, you know, we can go on with interest rate swaps. Obviously, the U.S. dollar's exchange value. And as I said, repo fails at an enormous high. All of it together combined, not the Swiss bank auctions, but all the markets, all, all the market indications are telling you that there's something really going on here. Something is not right in the global monetary system.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, as you mentioned, the collateral shortage, let, let's touch on that a bit. And so, as you mentioned, we, we have seen the the four-week T-bill trading uh, extremely high below RRP and, and SOFR in some cases, um, which is signal, signaling elevated demand for pristine collateral, which is mainly based around USTs, right? And so, you know, why is there currently a collateral shortage? Is it mainly due to QE and central banks buying up all those bonds over the years, as well as a tightening macro environment where lenders are demanding higher quality collateral than before. A- am I thinking about that correctly or, or how, how do the dynamics currently look in, in the collateral world?
1: Yeah, there's a couple different factors and you, you've got a couple of them there, right, Jim? Is that Number one is QE can take collateral out of the system and then lock it up Um, The Fed does operate a securities lending program, but nobody really uses it because it's not really efficient. There's other factors and frictions involved with it too. But by and large, when the Fed buys bonds, U.S. Treasuries from the market, that's removing collateral. Now, the Fed has learned from its own past mistakes in 2013 in particular, the Fed is careful not to buy the best of the best collateral. They don't buy the on the run stuff. Now, they did that in 2013 and it came back to haunt them. And they haven't been buying treasury bills like they made a huge mistake in doing in their not QE5 in 2019 into 2020. They bought up to $300 billion in treasury bills at the worst possible time into March 2020. They learned from that mistake, too. Um, they haven't been buying. They've been reinvesting maturities in treasury bills, but they haven't bought any more bills. So the Fed is careful with QE not to buy the best of the best stuff, the liquid stuff, the on-the-run stuff. Okay. But regardless, they are still buying bonds and taking them out of the marketplace, um, the, other, the other issue on, in terms of supply and availability is the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department is issuing fewer bills because the Treasury Department doesn't consider bills or notes or bonds as collateral and money. They only consider what the Treasury Department is supposed to consider, which is the fiscal situation and the borrowing capacity of the federal government. So because the, de- the fiscal deficit has declined, there's been less of a need for the government to issue bills in particular and so they've been removing bills from circulation, even though the price of these bills, as you mentioned, Jim, have gone through the roof. In fact, the Treasury Department knows there's high demand for bills. Um, they just re- they just converted one of their cash management bills into a regular now for a benchmark benchmark four month Treasury bill, regular auction Treasury bill, because there is this high demand for Treasury bills. They never say why, but they just hey, there's high demand for Treasury bills. But regardless the uh, Treasury Department is responding to lower fiscal deficits by issuing fewer bills and fewer notes and bonds. So there's l- less supply. There's the QE factor. But the biggest factor in my mind is what you're, you were alluding to there, which is the fact that there is always lower quality collateral in the system being used. And we also have to keep in mind that even the good quality collateral is reused and relent and repurposed and rehypothecated right. in some circumstances. So there's a collateral multiplier on top of this consideration of junk collateral. And so in situations like we've been talking about where dealer banks in the system become risk averse, that's one of the things that gets affected. As you were as you were mentioned, um, the junk or the lower quality collateral, suddenly we revalue that. We, we raise the haircuts on the lower quality collateral because repo counterparties want to protect themselves in case they have to sell the the asset in in case of default, so that causes problems. As does a a, a lower uh, multiplier, less less of a, a reuse rate. So if treasuries are not circulating through the uh, through the the collateralized system as 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 much or as fast as they normally would, that causes a problem too, where there's enormous collateral shortage because. Counterparties in the marketplace are not getting enough collateral that they need to run their portfolios. And if you don't have the collateral, you can't borrow, you can't can't assume leverage, and it leads to all sorts of negative consequences, including the worst cases, which are fire sales of assets, which just contribute to the self-reinforcing deflationary downward spiral. So collateral is absolutely vital to how the system works. And there are any number of ways in which it could be breaking down. And I would imagine, Jim, that it's probably all of them. You've got the treasury supplying fewer bills. You've got the QE that's locked up a lot of bonds. And QT doesn't actually help because it's not actually putting mar- uh, bonds back in the marketplace. Right. And then on top of it, you've got risk-averse dealers who are Probably scaling back their their securities lending programs, which means fewer relending and reusing of good quality collateral. At the same time, they're rejecting and revaluing the lower quality stuff. And it's just it's just a recipe for a mess.
0: Interesting. The collateral shortage largely then plays back into the dollar shortage, right? Because essentially what you're saying is that it, it's harder than to obtain dollars for a large portion of the market due to the fact that they can't access that collateral in order to then obtain more of that dollar denominated credit.
1: Yeah, and it's it's collateral isn't just repo, it's also in derivatives too. Okay. So if you're in a currency swap and the counterparty who you're swapping into dollars says, "I think I'm I'm a little bit risk averse here, I need a higher premium to give you the dollars in the swap." Well, there's two ways you can mitigate that. It's either put up more collateral or pay more in your local currency. And so the dollar goes up against the currency goes down or you need more collateral. Either way, um, it works out to the same thing. And usually it's both at the same time. I need more collateral and I'm going to charge you more on the swap. So it's (laughs) the dollar goes up and I need more collateral. Um, That's really the the, it's it's impossible to break that cycle. It's once dealers become risk averse, then it leads to negative consequences, which makes dealers even more risk averse. Um, but like the word transitory, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen all at once. It, it's a little bit here, a little bit there, and it spills over and it goes, uh, it goes through time. You know, Even the 2008 crisis wasn't in 2008. It began in 2006. It took three years from top to bottom, right? Um, so even though we talk about these things and it, it sounds like we're talking about, oh, my God, the, the market's going to crash tomorrow. That's not really what we're saying is we're seeing all of these processes play out and continue to play out. And they get a little bit bigger each time. You know, the, the deflationary wave gets bigger, then it contracts a little bit. There's a little bit of a sigh of relief. Then then there you got risk aversion again. Collateral chains collapse, and and it produces the next wave, which gets a little bit bigger still. And then there's a you know a sigh of relief and a little bit of risk taking. But then everything falls apart again. It's a, it's a back and forth fluctuation, a process which, if if it doesn't stop, if it's not interrupted, it, it, that's where it leads into all of those nasty consequences. Which happened to be bringing this back to our earlier discussion are priced into euro dollar futures and the treasury curve. There is something out there that the euro dollar curve and the treasury curve and even the German bund curve that one, right. uh, that one inverted for the first time ever between the 10 year and 30 year long German bonds never had inverted before in the two decade history of the 30 year bond. Wow. Not only did it invert, it has stayed inverted, it has been in and out over the last month and a half. So we've got curves all over the world saying something is bothering the marketplace so much that it's picturing this upside down curves, which suggest for the Fed, as well as the ECB and other central banks, they are going to stop hiking rates and are going to do something. They're, they're going to start cutting them because something is going on here.
0: Right. Very intriguing. Yeah, as, as you mentioned before, we, we recently also saw, you know, the gill markets run into trouble, uh, largely due to a collateral crunch, leading the BOE to help backstop and, and ease the guild markets. Is that a potential solution that we'll need to see more central bank backstops in order to kind of ease that global collateral shortage moving forward? Or are there any other you know, potential solutions for this issue or does it normally just always lead to some type of global economic destruction?
1: Well, central banks are going to want to do something because they can't just sit idly by and pretend, you know, that nothing's happening. Right. So the Bank of England is going to do, I mean, look, it sees the price of UK government bonds go down, um, regardless of why they they can't just sit there and do nothing. So central banks are going to respond to those types of events. Uh, even in Europe, we already saw that happen in the summer um, with the Italian bond problem. The ECB came up with what it called an anti-fragmentation policy, which is, you just shake your head and laugh, um, <laughs> which is basically, hey, there's there's too much of a spread on Italian bonds, and we're going to to try to narrow that spread. We're going to buy more Italian bonds and sell German bonds and see if that works. And of course, it didn't because it doesn't actually solve any of the problem, just like the UK government opera, or the BOE operation didn't solve the problem. Um, the marketplace, the monetary play, the monetary system is the real issue here. And if, you know, in the terms of UK guilts, what happened was, in any sort of collateralized agreement, if I'm lending you dollars and you're giving me some form of security, even if it's a collateral for collateral swap, where if I'm lending you treasuries and you're giving me UK gilts, um, should you default and not give me back the treasuries tomorrow, I have the right to sell, to seize and sell your UK gilts. Right. But if I perceive the gilt market is illiquid, I'm going to demand more of a premium to do the same collateral for collateral swap. So, if for whatever reason the market becomes risk-averse about UK guilts, that's what you're going to see happen. You're going to see the prices on those change to, to more align with perceptions of risk and operation in the marketplace. And there's any number of reasons why that the UK, like the, like the Italian bonds, are being increasingly rejected by the marketplace. I mean, the UK is an unstable fiscal situation, which is, you know, the uh, the tax cut proposal which may make yeah. sense in an economic basis, but didn't make sense in terms of the, uh, the UK gilt market. But for whatever reasons, the dollar system, the dealer system, remember, this is a bank driven system, didn't like Italian bonds, didn't like UK bonds. And so what are central banks going to do about it? They're, they're, they're going to have to try to do something, but that doesn't mean it's going to be successful.
0: Right. Are there any parallels or precedent that we can draw here in terms of the dollar and collateral shortage um, and our current situation from, from historical cycles at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen this happen uh, repeatedly, actually, ever since the first one, which if you were to distill the 2007, 2008 crisis into a single factor, it was it was obviously a complex situation. But if you were to say one thing that really drove the uh, 2008 crisis, it would be a collateral shortage. And so we've never really solved that problem ever since then. And we go into these intermittent cycles where we get, you know, a little bit relaxation where the collateral, you know, junk collateral becomes accepted. Uh, The collateral system expands a little bit, but never really enough. And then Dealers say, oh, we made a huge mistake here, whether it was uh, you know, Southern European, Italian and uh, Southern European sovereign bonds in 2010 and 2011 that created a collateral collapse into 2011 into 2012 that nearly triggered a crisis that was as bad as 2008 came very close okay. there. There was another one in 2014 and 2015 focused more on emerging market debt, um, junk bonds tied to oil prices, that kind of thing. That happened in 2015 and 2016. Another one in 2018, euro bonds, and of course, March of 2020. So we go through these, these intermittent collateral scarcity shortages, but this one seems a little bit different. This one seems a little more severe than any of those other ones apart from, say, 20, 2008 had been. And there's, there's a couple of reasons why that could be, though, again, we're because we don't have information, we don't have the ability to directly observe what's going on in the on these dealer balance sheets in right. their securities lending practices. We can't say for certain what's what's actually wrong here. Nobody can. Even the dealers that are operating in it, they they look at it in a very small, you know, very tunnel vision type of way. There's no re, there's no real way for us to say this is the problem here. We sort of have to look at what markets are doing. We have to look at how the Various um, prices are responding, curves, shapes, all of those things are are changing over time to try to get a sense of what must be happening from from starting from a a a position of lack of information.
0: Gotcha. Super interesting. And so. Lastly, um, I want to touch on the the yield curve. And so, uh, you know, the, the two-year tenure is pretty heavily inverted uh, to levels not seen since 2000. And uh, more recently, we've also seen the three-month tenure begin its inversion as well. And so, Jeff, first of all, why is the yield curve so heavily inverted? And secondly, you've spoken about the importance of the three-month tenure inversion. So why, why is the three months so important as well?
1: well like you said jim it's progression we start out with a little tiny bit of a inversion that's down the curve euro dollar futures when it first inverted that was last december right. and it was way out in the june 20 or the december 2025 contracts and then the inversion slowly move creeps up toward the front getting not just uh, getting broader as well as deeper so the inversion there's a progression here and as it gets closer and closer to the front that's when you know, number one, the market is more and more certain that something's going to happen. And number two, that's something that's going to happen while we can't say exactly when we know it must be getting closer and closer. So as the inversion moves from back to front, that's the curve saying it's going to happen and it's going to happen probably sooner. Same thing in the treasury market and the treasury curve. It starts with, you know with a little inversion that began between the seven year and 10 year, part of the, the uh, part of the curve way back in, in March. Uh, and then it got moved up a little bit. We, we had the two tens inversion that that it just it, it inverted for a little bit, and then it went away. And then the, the curve goes in and out of inversion. And then we got to June when we had another massive wave of deflationary money. And then the curve, as you said, massively inverted between the two-year and 10-year. And then ever since then, it's sort of been creeping slowly up for, cl- closer and closer to the front. There's this progression in the yield curve inversion that tells us that the market is becoming more and more certain that something is happening and more and more certain that something is happening sooner rather than later. Again, sooner is a term of art like transitory. It doesn't right. mean tomorrow and it may not mean next month. It just means that in some, you know, more likely the short run rather than the intermediate or longer run. And the three month, 10 year spread is a key one because it suggests we're getting into the, you know, the, 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 very front of the curve. Um, where policymakers suggest it doesn't really get any, it doesn't really become important until it becomes the three month and the 18 month forward rate or the two year if you're, if you really want to um, look at it very simply, which isn't, again, it's what we're all saying is that there's a progression here. Policymakers say you ignore the yield curve until it progresses to the very front. And now that we have the three month bill inverted to the 10 year, we're almost to the very front. So, in terms of trying to figure out where we are in that progression, that's a key warning sign, a key, sign, key signpost that uh, the market is, again, more, incre- more and more certain that it's going, something is going to happen that's going to lead to lower rates in the near future. That's really what the inversions suggest. And it's up to us to kind of fill in the blanks about what that would be, but given the Fed's stance on CPI, as we mentioned, and the economic and financial reality, especially the monetary reality, the list of suspects that are going to cause lower rates in the near term future is is pretty small at this point
0: interesting yeah a lot a lot to think about there um, but also so so looking at the longer end here in your view have we seen the 10-year yield peak here and do you know <laughs> probabilities and scenarios suggest that the yield curve could invert further or are we kind of peeking out here
1: Every time that it looks like the, the, the longer end of the yield curve is peaked, it gets pushed up by another rate hike at the short end or whatever. So All I don't right. – <laughs> that's, that's, that is the wild card here, not the something that's going to happen or lower rates. Those, seems, those things seem to be baked into the uh, into the cake. It's the wild card is when does the Fed finally realize this something is happening and when does the Fed finally incorporate that something into its policy process? And that's the, that's, it's impossible to tell because again, like CPIs, you're not, you're not dealing with economic factors. You're dealing with human factors. You're dealing with politics, right? You know, the Fed isn't, isn't operating on a basis of, like I said before, an ideal central bank. It's a political bureaucratic institution who looks at its job very differently than what it should. And so (laughs) they're saying is, Hey, the CPI stays high. We're going to focus on the CPI to the exclusion of everything else. And what the market is saying is that's a big mistake and that at some point this something else is just going to make it impossible to focus on the CPI. But you have but then you're judging when will Jay Powell finally turn around and look at this something else. And that's impossible to say. And so there is there's definitely some upside potential in interest rates. I wouldn't I mean, the curve is just probably going to get more and more inverted as the short term rates go higher, as we've seen in all the rest of the curves. But that doesn't mean that the long-term rates can't go higher because they've been going higher all year, um, pressured by what the Fed is going to do rather than what the economy is going to do because the economy is doing something else. And so it's really just a game of trying to figure out when when does the Fed wake up? When does the Fed wake up and stop focusing on the CPI and start focusing on reality, forward-looking reality? And that's who knows. And until the Fed actually decides and says, maybe it's today, maybe the Fed comes out today and says, you know what, this there's a, this is the last 75 basis point rate hike because we're we're getting phone calls from all over the world. The Central Bank, <laughs> of the Reserve Bank of India said, hey, we're spending tons of our reserves because there's a dollar shortage. So knock it off. You know, the Chinese, the Japanese, the Japanese are spending hundreds of billions of their reserves. So maybe that's happening and we don't even know it. Um, so, but that just, you know, goes to my point where it's impossible to tell when the Fed will say, when the, when will the Fed cry uncle? don't really know we just know that there's a high probability that it happens at some point
0: right staying on the long end here from a fundamental supply and demand perspective as we know the the three of the largest holders China Japan and the Fed have continuously sold off the the long end so I mean, who, who's the marginal buyer here of treasuries moving forward? And are China and Japan selling treasuries in order to obtain that additional dollar liquidity for their own economies?
1: Yeah, the second part of that question is exactly right. Okay. Uh, the reason foreign governments um, sell treasuries, central banks and reserve managers sell treasuries because they're trying to supply dollars into the local system that they're not getting from the marketplace. Right. And not necessarily supply. Sometimes it's just subsidizing. Um, okay. You know, euro dollar borrowing becomes more expensive. So the central bank steps in and tries to subsidize local euro dollar borrowing usually is a temporary measure, believing that it's a short term disruption in the market. And so we sell some treasuries, subsidize local borrowing. Everything goes back to normal. It's all fine again. That's not usually what happens. China is a perfect example. I mean, they spent a trillion dollars in the reserves back in 2014, 15 and 16 to no avail, by the way. Um, So central banks try to meet their dollar needs by selling reserves as a last, last resort kind of measure. Now, as far as who's buying treasuries, there's any number of people. This is the part that mystifies everybody because it doesn't seem like anybody should be buying treasuries. But a couple of things that we've seen recently this year. Number one, foreign private entities, probably financial institutions, have been buying record amounts of U.S. treasuries, not just bills, but long term treasuries. That's where they've been buying. In fact, they're probably thanking Jay Powell for cheapening them, allowing them to buy them very, very uh, cheaply. So one reason why the yield curve is so inverted, because people outside the United States can't get enough of these long term treasuries because they see the, the consequences of the U.S. dollar system more directly than we do here in America, where we're sort of sheltered from the rising dollar and what it's doing to the rest of the world. So they're buying U.S. Treasury, safety, liquidity, U.S. dollar-denominated instruments, as are many basis traders, hedge funds. Um, One of the things, you know, we heard this too-many-treasuries argument back in 2018 when the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017 was passed that raised the deficit. And everybody said, oh, my God, who's going to buy all these treasuries? The Fed's doing QT. Uh, Foreign governments seem to be selling their treasuries. There'll be no way to service all of this debt. Yet what happened? Treasury yields went lower. <laughs> Treasury prices went high. There was absolutely no problem absorbing that debt because hedge funds took advantage of a quirk in the marketplace that happened to um, incentivize leverage trading in the safest liquid U.S. dollar dominant assets. They took about, I think it was $2 trillion in treasuries. So they were actually buying what foreign governments were selling. <laughs> it's Interesting. Just crazy as that sounds. And the basis trade has come back this year, too. So... You know, when people get say they're concerned about who's going to buy Treasuries, as long as there's an incentive in the marketplace to do so, meaning a fundamental proposition of demand for liquidity, demand for safety in the U.S. dollar denomination, there will always be a place for Treasuries, and that's that's not even getting into the collateral considerations, where there's demand for collateral, the best of the best quality collateral, which really, when that happens, like we see in T-bills, it really uh, propels demand for these things for these instruments. So. As far as demand for treasuries go, there there's plenty of demand out there even if you can't put it into a single bucket like foreign governments or the Fed or pension funds or whatever it happens to be.
0: Right, yeah, that's interesting because I was I was thinking like due to the collateral shortage, like there must be a lot of private parties that are would scoop up tons of to, of treasuries if if, if you were going to offer it to them, right?
1: And they do. They buy them, they buy them at almost any cost, and that's really the, right. the thing here is that and then once that happens, it becomes a self-reinforcing process too, because as the price of collateral goes up, everybody realizes I got to have the best quality. I so saw people start buying at any price, which is why right. you saw in late 2018, for example, during that period, uh, Treasury yields fell precipitously because of the collateral squeeze at the end of 2018. So, regardless of all all year, we heard about too many Treasuries, and then all of a sudden there was this huge demand or huge spike in prices for those for those instruments because of collateral considerations, uh, primary among everything else.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting. And so lastly here, um, we're so we're going to see a pretty large influx of treasury issuance coming into the market in November, at least with 234 billion net new treasuries. Um, and so I'm also curious, where does the overnight reverse repo facility play into all of this, right? Like, there's still about two trillion dollars sitting in the overnight RP. Uh, does this start getting drained as as Treasury issuance increases, or what, what, what's that two trillion dollars going to do?
1: Yeah, and that's you know the the reverse repo is something that's also very very much misunderstood. People talk about it as there's too much money, all that stuff. But as right. we've seen. You know, bank reserves have been falling this year and the reverse repo has been pretty much steady. Um, It's because there's a there's not enough collateralized opportunity for the amount of cash out there. It's a measure of risk aversion. If you have excess cash, like a money market fund, for example, uh, you only want to lend in very safe short term instruments. Your options are either treasury bills or repo. And if you go into the repo market and there are not enough counterparties giving you the collateral that you want, which is usually treasuries, you don't have any other options. You have to go to the Fed because right. the Fed is the only other option that can offer you the same type of alternative, which is what the reverse repo window is designed to be. It's designed to be an alternative. It wasn't designed to be an alternative for a collateral shortage. It was designed to be for what everybody says to soak up excess reserves. But that's not what we've seen this year in particular. We've seen risk aversion among money market participants where they're only going to the Fed because there must not be enough muff um, counterparties in repo that have the right collateral, which is why, as I mentioned before, GC repo rates, therefore sofa rates have come way down. Right. It's not because there's too much money. It's because there's not enough good quality collateral that cash can find a counterparty using that collateral. So if we have more treasury issuance, that may help a little bit. Not, I'm not too optimistic about it. Um, it might help a little bit with, um, More introducing more collateral into the system, which could take a little bit out of RRP, could uh, firm up uh, repo rates and so forth and things like that. But to me, it's always about the risk aversion part and the dealer multiplier, the collateral multiplier. If we could have a greater supply of collateral, but a much larger, a small contraction in the multiplier that not just offsets it, but completely cancels it out. So if dealers become even more risk averse in the fourth quarter, it won't matter that there's more collateral. And as I said, I'm not worried about more treasury or issuance, um, especially if they're issuing more bills. That's a that's a positive thing for the marketplace, not a negative.
0: Very interesting. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Jeff. Really appreciate it. We have uh, a lot for investors to digest as we move into Q4 in 2023. And so uh, where where can the folks find more of your work?
1: They can find me at Eurodollar University, which is my YouTube channel is Eurodollar University. And the website is Eurodollar.university. Lots of stuff there, information. We talk about this stuff all the time. You know, deep dives into the monetary system and more so the compli- the consequences and implications of all of these things, which are, you know, as you're saying, may- we're living in very interesting times, which is, is both a uh, it's a curse as well as a, as a benefit for people who are. <laughs> interested in in really finding out and digging into these things
0: yeah highly recommend you all you all go check that out well thanks so much for your time today jeff really appreciate it
1: my pleasure jim thanks for having me take care all right take care